I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You can follow us at Open Mind TV and support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Michael McDonald, political scientist at the University of Florida. Welcome, Michael. Great to be with you. Michael, what are you expecting in terms of how redistricting, gerrymandering, and election law reform will impact this 22 cycle? It's a difficult question to answer because there's so many unknowns still. Um, The largest unknown at this point is whether or not Democrats are going to be successful in the Senate to be able to reform the filibuster in some manner that would allow them to pass some very significant federal uh, voting reforms. Now, those reforms could only affect the federal elections. So we're talking about the Senate and congressional elections. That's an authority that the Congress has under Article 1, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution. Um, So it's still possible that, at least with H.R. 1, that uh, some of the provisions there would not affect state legislative uh, or other local elections that are happening in 2022. Uh, That said, usually when you get uh, a reform of, like, say, early voting hours and, and whatnot, it is difficult for states to try to parallel implement one set of rules for state elections and another uh, set of rules for uh, federal elections. So likely if HR1 passed, it, most states would try to just implement all of the reforms um, for all the elections that are happening in the general election, say, of 2022. Um, that's for some aspects of it, but there's a lot more going on. There's also um, the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act extension, uh, which would reinvigorate Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And um, uh, that would apply to state elections as well as federal elections. Um, so that could be more, much more broad sweeping, uh, especially in some of these southern states and places like Arizona that were covered under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and would now be recovered um, that could impact their ability to um, change election laws in a way that might reduce a minority community's ability to uh, fully participate in elections. Um, and I can go on, it's complicated. And undoubtedly, if, if those laws pass at the federal level to try to undo some of the activity that we're seeing at the state level, um, we would be mired in litigation around this. Uh, it's not clear if there'd be enough time between now and um, 2022 for these laws to take effect with uh, that litigation looming over them. And so um, it may be that, say, for congressional or state legislative redistricting, even if the federal government passed some laws, um, some states may not be able to implement those laws uh, in enough time. They'd have to change their constitutions in some cases. They'd have to change their state laws, which are easier to change. And um, there'd be litigation just around changing those laws, uh, much less the states pushing back against the federal government. So... um, complicated is, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, a uh, understatement of the dynamics that we're seeing right now in elections. I'm very glad you pointed out the jurisdictional issue, which is that ultimately, even with the passage of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act or H.R. 1, this would quickly be escalated to the U.S. Supreme Court, which may very well dilute or destroy the new legislation, although 
there's this question of severability, right? And, and whether the legislation, either the John Lewis extension or HR one could be written in a way that would prevent those disputes, those state-based disputes from succeeding. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at the laws themselves are being passed by the states, they also have those severability clauses. Um, they're designed to protect as much as they can any challenges to these laws so that um, those that portions that aren't successfully challenged can continue to go on to into effect. So it's really a patchwork um, and it, all of that patchwork could get implemented. None of it could get implemented and anywhere in between. So um, again, there's a lot of play that's going to be happening over the next year, um, even with the state laws that are being passed at the moment, because those are going to be challenged and uh, in court, even if the federal government doesn't take action. Uh, so again, it's just a, a very dynamic and uncertain situation that we find ourselves in. What aspect of either one would be strongest in counteracting the state restrictions? Well, if we're, it really depends on what we're talking about. But if we're talking about redistricting, um, then uh, the HR1 would require bipartisan redistricting commissions uh, throughout the entire country. And some of these places uh, where the Republicans currently hold majority control over the redistricting process, either through the legislative process or a commission that is a partisan type commission, not a nonpartisan or bipartisan commission, um, uh, the ability for Republicans to gerrymander to their heart's content would be uh, severely limited if uh, Democrats have a say or block in the way in which those plans are implemented. Uh, so um, that would be very significant. The other part of it would be um, on voting rights. So if the John Lewis Voting Rights Act gets passed and reinvigorates Section 5, then if a state uh, that's covered uh, under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, um, newly covered or recovered, um, implemented a redistricting plan that would have a negative effect on minority representation, then um, that plan could be uh, forbidden from being taken effect by either the federal, uh, somewhere in the federal government, either the Department of Justice or the District Court of DC. So um, that could uh, limit in some ways, not entirely the all of the possibilities of Republican gerrymanders, um, um, but the important thing about the Voting Rights Act extension is that it it does affect state legislative and even local redistricting. Um, so it's uh, in some ways it's it it goes deeper down into the election ecosystem than what the federal government can do with in terms of congressional redistricting, which you know is only the HR one can only affect the congressional redistricting. Um, uh, the Voting Rights Act extension affects all redistrictings in areas that are covered. Uh, and again, those are primarily areas in the South, but there are some places like Arizona, uh, which do have significant minority populations, which could be covered as well. Um, that's just the redistricting. <laughs> and then we're talking about HR1, some of the other provisions like, you know, uh, mandating a certain number of, of early voting days, automatic voter registration, um, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, some of the things that we're seeing right now, uh, restricting mail balloting access, uh, early voting days, uh, uh, 
automatic registration, all of those would be uh, blocks would be put on those changes to those laws that are happening right now within places like Arizona, uh, Georgia, Iowa, among others. So, um, and, and there are other places that are looking to restrict um, access to the ballot as well. So those are just three that we're, most people probably <laughs> may know about, but there's bills going on in Florida and elsewhere that are also moving through the system. So um, that I, I think is the um, HR1 uh, has a different effect on the way in which the elections are conducted uh, versus HR1 plus the Voting Rights Act, which affects uh, the way in which redistricting is performed. What are we looking at in terms of the electoral consequence of that in 2022? Uh, 2018 was a record midterm year, you know, demographics uh, cohorts that normally don't show up for midterms did in larger numbers. Um, so how, how are we looking at the potential of restrictive measures impacting the vote in 2022? Well, again, it's, this is very complicated. 2018, Turnout was a record. It was the highest turnout rate for a midterm election since 1914. So once in a a century. Um, And the driving force behind that, I firmly believe, was Donald Trump. The election laws had not changed between 2014, which had the lowest turnout rate since uh, 19. Uh, 42. I hope I'm getting my date right. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and then we went from the lowest, one of the lowest turnout rates in a modern election to one of the highest in 2018 for a midterm election. And then we had a very exceptional turnout rate in 2020. The, the only thing that changed was Donald Trump in our politics. And 2022, um, if we're looking at overall turnout, what's going to, I think, depend very much on, on that level of turnout. It's going to be, whether or not Donald Trump is um, storming around doing campaign rallies every day and inciting people and dominating the news like he was doing when he was president. And if he does that, well, that could uh, spark a lot of interest in voting and, uh, you know, as a reaction in support of him and a reaction against him. Uh, That's what we saw in 2018. And by the way, the balance of that is pretty clearly that there were more people voting in 2018 against him than for him. So I don't think it's a net positive for Republicans for him to be engaged this way. It's just that it helps Republicans really bolster up their chances in in places that are predominantly rural areas. So that's to say, like, I I think Donald Trump is the big X factor when it comes to turnout in the 2022 election and his presence, the the extent of his presence is going to drive uh, much of turnout. Um, but when you start getting down into the weeds and you look at some of these uh, restrictive voting laws, they're targeted at very specific communities. So, for example, when Georgia restricts uh, weekend or really Sunday voting, that's a way to target African-American churches that do uh, something that's called souls to the polls on the, the Sunday before uh, an election. And it's a you know, it's voter mobilization. That's what something that they do. Um, there are. Um, conservative churches that or evangelical churches that also do voter mobilization drives. So there's nothing nefarious or illegal about what they do, but it's just part of the community and culture that happens uh, around elections. And uh, politicians, Republicans uh, in Georgia have specifically targeted that date because of this reason. They're seeing that 
their Democrats voting by this method and on this day, and they want to try to restrict that. And could that affect some turnout? Yes, it could. Um, and uh, you know, a number of studies have already uh, pointed out that that's there. You get a higher percentage of African Americans voting on that on that day. Would African Americans vote on some other day? Yeah, some of them probably would, but not all of them would. And so it likely would have an effect of depressing turnout. And you can just start going through and you look at um, uh, all of these laws and they seem to be very narrowly targeted towards uh, affecting Democrats. And, you know, again, if you look at the rhetoric that's coming from Trump and from some of these politicians at the state level and even local level, um, they're very clear about it. They're, they think that this is um, uh, that uh, these voting laws uh, or these policies help Democrats and uh, therefore trying to restrict voting of Democrats will help Republican chances. Um, so, yes, absolutely. We could see around the margins that, yeah, we get higher turnout if Trump's involved. But maybe we've depressed slightly the um, Democratic numbers in some ways by implementing these more restrictive measures in some places. And, uh, you know, on balance, I don't know where where we end up. It's still possible the Democrats could do very well. We're seeing states like Georgia trend in the Democratic direction in recent years, um, places like Texas as well. Um, so um, is this trend that we're seeing in places where in the South, where there's been a lot of immigration from other parts of the country uh, with people who are more liberal than the, than the people who are um, long-term residents of those states. Is, is that force going to affect what's going on in Georgia? Is the presence of Trump going to affect what's going on in Georgia? Is, are these laws going to affect? Again, there's many things going on here. And um, uh, it's difficult to say at this point right now, uh, still a year and a half out from elections in 2022. And gosh, we're only a year and a half out. That's kind of frightening to think that there's another election right around the corner. But um, it's hard to tell uh, at this point, like what the net effect of all these things are going to be, um, because there's just so many variables at play here. And I, again, I think the the biggest variable is Trump, but these laws are targeted to try to suppress the votes of some Democrats. When you think of the fact that the largest factor is Trump. It's more than negative polarization or partisanship in the sense that Trump is viewed by the majority of this country as an existential threat to democracy and democratic norms. In the case of Georgia, it seemed as though the, the exploitation of the big lie and the days and months long campaign to amplify the big lie frustrated enough voters in Georgia that even prior to the Trump incited violence on January 6th, they came out against Republicans, including people who had been registered Republicans or formerly Republicans. Um, When you you talk about one single figure – uh, catalyzing the the opposition and potentially galvanizing the electorate. Is it uncommon that our politics is so driven by this single person right now, even though he's not in office anymore? Um, to a degree, yes. I mean, it is unusual. It uh, It's very much of a um, cult of personality around an individual trying to co-opt the Republican Party at the moment. And that seems like to be the better strategy if you're going to try to um, create a political movement is to co-opt an existing party. And Republicans are, um, by and large, 
willing to go along with him. And so it seems like he's going to be um, a presence in 2022, but he's also not going to be president anymore. And, you know, a lot of what was happening in 2018 was a reaction to Trump and his policies and um, and the way in which he could inflame people's passions. Um, I don't know how much that translates to a situation where he's an ex-president and um, uh, the policies that he's acting, that he's espousing aren't actually something that he has any control over anymore. And so it's just, I don't know. I really don't know what, um, what 2022 has in store for us. There is the argument that restricting voting measures actually is going to hurt both parties and potentially hurt them to an equal degree. The fact that Donald Trump has made and, and Trumpism made inroads with non-white voters in urban metropolises uh, would suggest that um, Donald Trump may be restricting the votes of uh, communities that are not necessarily as you know, devoutly liberal or democratic voting as one would think. But in that argument about whether or not voter voter and voting restrictions hurts both parties equally, um, do you come to a conclusion that uh, that it that it that is not the case, and that restricting voting hurts Democrats more than Republicans? Well, some of these laws are very narrowly targeted at um, the ways in which Democrats vote or in which the way in which they voted in 2020. And, um, you know, a large number of people were voting by mail and most of them were Democrats. Um, not because that's a normal way in which people vote in this country um, in many places like Georgia, for example. Um, uh, no excuse absentee voting um, you know, that, that it's present, but, um, Democrats like to vote in person, um, early and Republicans tend to vote on election day and then voting on, um, uh, you know, by mail is something that, um, Republicans tend to do more often. And so, um, it could be that making, uh, uh, excuse required absentee voting, uh, uh a new law in Georgia could actually, after we pass a pandemic, uh, could actually hurt Republicans. And, you know, there's some evidence to say that. I mean, before we looked at, before we got to the 2020 election, a number of academic studies have been done, which found that uh, mail balloting actually benefits Republicans, not so much in presidential elections. It's in these lower turnout elections. And you look at the sort of moderate propensity voters who are likely to be engaged when they're sent a mail ballot or able to cast an early vote. Um, they tend to be um, uh, higher income, higher education. They tend to look more like Republicans than they do uh, Democrats. And so it could be that maybe not in a presidential election or even a midterm election, but maybe in these primary state elections, local elections, that's where we could see actually the, these efforts backfiring. Now, let's also be aware that in Georgia, what they've also done is, um, again, trying to narrowly target to affect uh, Democratic votes. 
um, there's an age exemption uh, allowed in Georgia. Um, so that would be one of the excuses that would be permitted, um, like some other states, like say Texas and um, Louisiana and South Carolina. And so um, it could be that uh, that age um, uh, restriction, you know, and, and giving that as a uh, uh, an excuse, you know, will allow more Republicans who might otherwise have been challenged to vote a mail ballot um, or excluded from voting a mail ballot, they would be allowed to do so under the law. So again, they, they, these laws are being narrowly written and it's going to take us a while to try to figure out um, what it is exactly what these laws are doing. And because um, they're still, in some cases, they're still being, um, they're going through the legislative process. <laughs> so um, we'll have to see what their final form is. And, uh, um, and then we'll have to look at the effects and they may be, Yes, they may have some depressing effects. They may have, uh, there may be some exemptions in there that are going to um, try to alleviate the burden for uh, Republicans, uh, Republican voters. When you think of the of the 2022 election and also the, the 2024 election, your criteria for folks' engagement is not strictly going to be tied to, to Donald Trump. Um, should Donald Trump not be the nominee in 24, you know, should he not barnstorm as much as you forecast or potentially forecast he would, there's st- there still seems to be this, this idea that, that uh, because of how entrenched are the divide is that if your party does not succeed, then, there will be a major conflagration, a major risk to you know, your vision of America. So do you see that as transcending Trump and the possibility that in 2024, that might be the largest volume of American voters in, in our history, um, even if Trump, again, is not on the ballot? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the polarization that we're seeing in our politics and the deep political divides that we have um, likely are driving turnout as well, because now people see a very clear choice, a very stark choice between voting for a Democrat and Republican. Where just say uh, 20 years ago, um, the that choice was not nearly as stark as it is today, and we had lower turnout rates. Um, back before 2000 um, for a long period of time. The, what we're in right now is actually, if you go way back to the late 1800s, it seems like we're in a very similar situation as then. Very closely divided politics at the national level, um, but at the regional level, um, uh, we're not as divided and we're seeing very high turnout rates. And then uh, uh, the ability for both chambers of Congress and the presidency to flip back and forth. And um, during that period of time, we had exceptionally high turnout in the United States as well. And it was only when um, we saw sort of the demise of the political parties during the progressive era that we saw turnout rates go down to these levels. Um, and that progressive era started around 1900. And it's not not a coincidence then perhaps that the uh, 20 uh, 20 election had the highest turnout rate since 1900. Um, it's that destruction of the political parties. Now, that drove down turnout and, and the differences between the parties waned and, and uh, people didn't see as much of a reason 
to uh, vote for one party versus the other as they um, uh, now are, are doing again. Um, so that can drive turnout. There's an, another argument to say that turnout will um, be higher because there's a number of studies that have found that if you're likely to vote once, you're much more likely to vote again. And there are a couple of reasons why. One is that, uh, well, you've cleared the hurdle of voting and now you know the process, you're registered and you know how to vote. And so it's easier for you to overcome the cost of voting. Another reason is that, well, you are registered and the political parties know you're registered and the political parties happen to know also that you voted and they're going to target you with messages that encourage you to vote again and vote for their candidates. Um, they don't do that for people who don't vote. Um, uh, it's too much of an effort to try to expand the electorate. It's much better strategy for political campaigns, especially at, you know, in these midterm elections where you don't have as well-funded candidates than a presidential election. Um, it's better strategy for them to target uh, people who've already voted. So um, I, I think where we end up, um, I, again, I, my, and this is just my gut feeling, is that we're somewhere between 2014 and 2018 in terms of our turnout. Um, we'll probably see a retrenchment. We'll probably see turnout rates go lower, but they're not going to revert all the way back down to the low level, lowest level that we had like in, in 2014. So we'll be somewhere in between and we'll, we'll probably be above the average that we've been since, um, I would say the late, uh, 1960s, um, in terms of midterm turnout rates, which were around 40, a little bit over 40% of those eligible to vote. We could be around, you know, mid 40% turnout rate. That seems sort of reasonable, um, given where we are right now. But again, there's a lot that has to happen between now and 2022. A lot of factors and forces that we have to see how they all play out um, that may tell us, you know, once we get closer into 2022, give us a much better sense as to where um, we're going, you know, both for turnout and, you know, and also which party people are going to support. Final question. Do you think that a, a recovery from the pandemic would increase or decrease turnout? Uh, folks seem highly motivated to participate by mail. It's a complicated question. But in terms of just Americans' preparedness to go to the polls, do you think that if the pandemic-related despair has subsided some, that that would induce more turnout or reduce turnout? Um, again, it's just so complicated. But um, the factors that enforces it would be at play then is if you look at the uh, economic forecast, we'll probably see a very robust recovery from uh, the depression or you know, whatever you want to call it, recession that happened uh, when COVID hit in early 2020. Um, and, you know, people vote when they're upset, um, when there's a reason for them to vote. And if things are going well in the country, uh, people who were motivated because they were concerned about COVID um, may not participate as high levels. And they may look at the state of the economy and be satisfied with it. Um, conversely, you may see the people who um, look at uh, Biden's administration, and there will be some scandal, undoubtedly, because whenever a president does anything, there'll be something that will energize 
the opposing side. Um, I don't think it's Dr. Seuss. Um, I think it, which Biden has no control over whatsoever, but it, um, it'll be something uh, between now and then that Republicans will latch on to and, um, and really stoke up their base. And it, that could, you know, whether or not that happens and to the degree that it happens um, could be very important for 2020 uh, to 2022. Um, uh, given, I think, again, that it's likely that people who are satisfied with the direction of the country are, um, um, it, they, it's, it, it's less uh, motivating to be happy and go vote than it is to be angry and go vote. Michael McDonald, thank you so much for your insight today. Great to be with you.